Friends, welcome to the Slaking Thirst podcast, where you'll find the homilies, talks, and reflections of Father Ryan Mann and Father Patrick Schultz of the Diocese of Cleveland. Slaking Thirst is all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, which is also a divine heart, seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts will meet and both thirsts will be slaked. Thanks for joining us on the journey into Christ's desire for us. Good evening, everybody. And it's so nice to see so many faces. I love your faces. I love faces now. I'm just telling you, it's so good to see faces. And uh, man, that incense was really going tonight. That was like, we had like the glory cloud going on over here. So this is, I was thinking about it when I was just standing over there watching Santino do the incense. I was thinking, do you know, do you know why, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical, do you know, or a, a rhetorical question. Do you know why we use incense uh, at mass? This is where you say, no, why, Father? Oh, so glad you asked. Okay, I'll tell you. Two reasons. The first reason is a practical reason. Um, practically, back in the day, when the church was celebrating masses in catacombs and, and house churches and in places where pilgrims would come from all sorts of places, not a lot of hygiene back in the ancient world. And so mass kind of tend to stink with people and farm animals, all sorts of things. So they would use incense to cover this scent. It's true. Very true story. Also because it represents our prayers arising to God, right? So that's, that's definitely in the scriptures. But also, Pope Benedict wrote this in um, Spirit of the Liturgy, and I read it a little while ago, and it, it rocked my world. I thought it was so cool, and it's very apropos for the feast we're celebrating today, that the incense, the smoke, the haze is meant to obscure our vision, right? That's what smoke does. It, it's cloudy. It's meant to obscure our vision. It's meant to um, prevent us from seeing clearly because... Like, the mystery that you are beholding in the sanctuary, it is, it is just that. It is, it is mystery, right? It is absolute mystery. This is not stuff that we can understand, like, in crystal clear mathematical formulas. This is stuff that is profound and deep. And what we're celebrating today, the solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, is the mystery of mysteries, right? When the church uses that word mystery, we don't mean it in the sense of like, you know, like a Nancy Drew mystery, like there's something unsolved here, that, right? We just got to get the theologians together and then they'll solve it, right? We'll crack the mystery of the Trinity. No. Mystery in this sense from the Greek muain, muain, means to shut one's mouth. That's what the word mystery literally means. It's that reality before which you just like, just there's nothing left to say. You're just left speechless. You're left speechless. I think it was uh, John Chrysostom, who I know you love, John Chrysostom, he talked about the Holy Trinity being like, the mystery of the Trinity being like the sun, and we gaze upon it like an owl gazing upon the sun. In other words, you can't see it. There's too much. We're blinded by the glory. We're blinded by the glory. What we're celebrating today is, is just that reality, that we're gazing into something that we can't really totally see or wrap our heads around, right? I, lo- I love this story of, uh, of St. Augustine. He's one of my favorites, but he was, he was writing a, uh, a treatise on the Trinity called De Trinitate, on the Trinity. And the story goes that Augustine had this um, sort of mystical encounter. He was at a beachside, and he sees this little boy digging a hole in the sand. Then he would grab a seashell, and he would run to the ocean, and he would scoop out some water from the ocean, run back, and he would pour it back in the hole that he dug in the sand. 
Then you go back to the ocean, same thing, pull up a little water, go back to the hole, dumping in. And he says, I asked the little boy, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to empty the ocean into this hole. He says, well, you're never going to do that. It's, that's never going to happen. And then this little child looks at him and says, so why are you trying to understand the Trinity? And then apparently he disappeared, which is so creepy and awesome. That's what we're trying to do tonight. So the church is inviting us to contemplate something that is at the heart of our faith, the mystery of mysteries. So here's the question. So should we just like, should I just sit down and just be like, well, there's nothing, there, we can't say anything, so just let's all go home. No, there's, 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 there's much that we can say only because God has spoken to us of this reality, right? That we can speak about the Trinity because God as Trinity has spoken to us. He's revealed aspects of his identity. We would never know that God was Trinitarian if it wasn't for him disclosing that to us. This is not a thing that we could have devised on our own, this one God in three persons. That's not something that a human mind could have just surmised, right? All ancient cultures had a sense of the divine, right? There's no atheistic ancient Near Eastern civilization. They all had some semblance of religiosity. You had the Greco-Roman pantheon. You had the Jews and their monotheism, right? We knew that God existed, but to know who God was within himself, he had to disclose himself. He had to become vulnerable. That's, I'm not preaching about that, but that's, that's a powerful aspect of this solemnity tonight, that the Trinity, the fact that we know that God is Trinity, has revealed the fact to us that God is willing to be immensely vulnerable to us. He's done the thing that we find most scary in our relationships, which is to disclose our hearts, the depths of our hearts to another person. That's what God has done. So, what can we say about the Trinity? No, God has revealed, uh, he has revealed himself. In fact, right from the very beginning of creation, God wrote into creation like a message about himself. He, he put a key, a cipher, a, a clue, an icon, if you will, of himself in creation that reveals his own Trinitarian life. You know what I'm talking about? Talking about your body, talking about our bodies, the human body, the human person, the human body in our masculinity, in our femininity, in our maleness, in our femaleness, in our humanity, in our complementarity, the call of the two to become one flesh. God put into creation this icon that was revealing in the most powerful way who he is. Remember how the story goes in Genesis, right? Those early pages of Genesis where God is creating out of nothing. It says, you know, God speaks. He says, let us, I know he says, let there be light and there's light, right? Let the waters come forth and they come forth. Let the heavens above separate from the waters below. And it all happens. Let them teem with birds. Let them teem with vegetation. Let them teem with creepy crawly things and things that swim and swarm, all the things, right? Then there's this, there's this moment in Genesis where it's as if God pauses and then the, 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 the speaking voice shifts and it's no longer let there be, it becomes let us make man in our image after our likeness. Male and female, he created them. Who is speaking in that first person plural? Let us. Up to that point, it was not an us. It was just barach in Hebrew. Let there be. Let there be. And now here all of a sudden you have let us. That's the Trinity. That's like the first glimpse we have of the Trinity in the scriptures. It's like the Trinity just kind of like lifts the corner of the veil just ever so slightly. Like I'm right here, right at the beginning. 
You know, the church fathers, John Chrysostom, Augustine, Tertullian, Origen, all of these early Christians, they loved contemplating the scriptures and looking for like signs of the Trinity hidden in the Old Testament. They loved looking for the places in which the Trinity was foreshadowed and prefigured, you know, places like, um, you know, God prescribed for Moses that he would build three things, huh, three, okay, three things that would be in the tabernacle, right? That's the portable tent that they would build in their desert wandering, right? So they leave Egypt and they would have this tabernacle, which was the tent of the meeting where God would meet Moses face to face, but behind the curtain. It was a prefigurement of the temple. In the tabernacle, inside the center of the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, God instructed Moses to build. So you have the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark, you have what's called the mercy seat, which was essentially the throne where God's presence would descend. So you have a throne. Also, you have this candle stand with seven flames. We know it today as a menorah, right? But you had the seven-flamed menorah. By the way, anybody know how many gifts of the Holy Spirit there are? Seven. I wonder if that's significant. Okay. And then you had this table, and on this table was a daily perpetual sacrifice of bread. It was called the bread of the presence. So you have this throne, you have these, this candle stand, and you have this bread, this daily offering, the bread of the presence. You see right there, hidden almost, in the heart of the Holy of Holies, is this hidden image of the Trinity, right? But the church fathers, the place where they love to contemplate God's presence the most, where they love to contemplate God's presence the most was in, where it was discerned most clearly was in the human person. The human person was God's masterpiece of creation. Everything in creation, waterfalls are glorious, rainbows are amazing, the rings of Saturn, unbelievable, but nothing in creation comes anywhere close to the glory of the human being. We are the crown jewel, we're the pinnacle of creation, and it's in us and us alone that God poured his image, his image and his likeness. So St. John Paul II, who's my great hero, reflecting on all of this, this great tradition of the church fathers, the saints, the mystics, St. John Paul II reflected so deep on these words of scripture to understand this human person, the image of God, the image, the earthly image of the Trinity. Right? So John Paul II, his very first teaching project as Pope, right? Wednesday General Audiences, the very first thing he started teaching the world about was about Genesis and humanity and male and female and masculinity and femininity and marriage and family and everything that that entails. See, John Paul II intuited something that if the first thousand years of Christianity were the church was wrestling with questions about who is Jesus... The second thousand years, the church is wrestling with questions about the nature of the church, right? You had all these Christological heresies about the nature of Christ, and then the the second thousand years, you have all of this fracturing of the church, schisms, and the Protestant Reformation, and 30,000 denominations. This third millennium, John Paul II saw the issue at play was a question about humanity, that we have failed to understand what it means to be human because we've lost sight of who God is. So he wanted to articulate again this image of humanity. That's what his, this teaching project was about. It became known to the world as the theology of the body. And this is the thesis statement. I'm going to read it for you. The thesis statement, the central argument of the theology of the body. He writes this. 
You still with me? I know, it's like five o'clock, it's gorgeous outside, a lot of smoke in here, we're all good? Okay, all right. He says this, the body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. Let me read one more time. The body, in fact, and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. The body has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. Like the body, he's saying, this fleshy thing that we all love to hate, these bodies of ours, so clearly mortal, were created by God to translate into time and space a reality that exists outside of time and space. Like the body was created to make visible an invisible reality. The only way you're going to make visible an invisible reality is through physicality, right? So God created these physical bodies to be a sign of a mystery that's been hidden in God from before all time. Before all time. So here's the question. What is the mystery that was hidden in God before all time? What was the mystery that was hidden? That's what we're celebrating tonight. That God himself is not this lone, solitary being, but God himself is a trinity. He's a communion of persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the mystery. This is what the Catechism says. Okay, by sending his only Son and the Spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed his innermost secret. He's spilled the beans, right? He's revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. Like the innermost secret of God, hidden from eternity, is that God is triune, that God is this communion of persons, this endless exchange of life and love. And this is the best part. This is the absolute best part. The Catechism says we are destined to share in that exchange. Like the doctrine, the dogma of the Trinity is not just simply about, it's not meant for us to simply like sit back and be like, like wow. Like, like people watching a fireworks show, right? You sit there and you're just like, ooh, and ah. Let me hear you do it. Yeah, thanks for playing. Okay, that's not what tonight's about. This, this solemnity, it's not just like, man, it must be so great to be God, right? That's so awesome. No, this solemnity is about reminding us of, of who we are, where we come from, and the extraordinary good news that our destiny is to be literally taken up into the very life of God. Like, that's our destiny. We're not meant to just simply go to heaven and live in the place where God also lives. No, no, no. Our destiny is to be literally taken up into the very heart and center of the Trinity. I have no idea what that means. I'm going to be totally honest. I have no idea what that means. St. Paul, when he's writing about this, St. Paul had this mystical experience where he tasted that glory of heaven, and he comes back and he writes, he says, I count all the sufferings of this present world as nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. Like, all of the sufferings of this present world, like every stub toe, 
Every injustice, every migraine, every childbirth, every holocaust, everything is summed up. And he says, it's nothing compared to the glory. Or St. Therese of Lisieux, she had this mystical experience where she tasted the glory of heaven. And she comes back from this prayer experience and says, I'd be willing to suffer every martyrdom of every martyr that has ever lived if I could taste one more degree of the glory of heaven. Like, what the heck? Does that even mean? What does it even mean? I don't know. All I know is it's revealing to me that my image of heaven is woefully inadequate, that my understanding of the Trinity is not just like this glowing star thing. It is a glory that corresponds to the deepest aches and hungers of my heart. Our eternal destiny is to be united to God. I'm going to give you a little homework. I'm going to land the homily here, but I'm going to give you some homework. I want you to go home, and I want you to look up uh, the, an image on Google. If you search Rublev, R-U-B-L-E-V, Rublev Trinity, Rublev Trinity, it's an image of an icon. It's probably one of the most famous images of an icon of the Trinity. So a man named Andrei Rublev in the 15th century, he was a Russian uh, iconographer. He, he depicted this image of the Trinity as the three angelic figures who visited Abraham. It's absolutely exquisite. There's so much we could talk about. But it, what's really astounding in this image, you have the Father up here, the Son over here, and the Holy Spirit down here. And in the foreground is this empty space. And he did that deliberately. It's... It's meant to be like where you sit, where I sit, where you enter in. And on the table, the the angels are sitting around this table. On the table is a chalice with some consecrated bread, the Eucharist, on it. In other words, he's saying the way you enter into the Trinity, even here and now, is through the Eucharist. Like the Trinity dwells in you, Eucharist consumers. The triune God has been living in you since your baptism, and heaven again tonight will be placed on your hand, put on your tongue, and enter your body. What does that mean? (laughs) I don't know. That's why God gives us a lifetime to contemplate these things. It's astounding. Let us pray together, all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.